Adam's sin brought the reign of death while Christ's work brought the reign of life. And to really appreciate the difference between the work of Adam, condemnation, death, and the work of Christ, justification, and life, we have to understand these two words, life and death. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Buford, South Carolina. We are in chapter 5 of our study from the book of Romans. This particular chapter is filled with rich theological truths, and so we are slowly working our way through the various concepts that the Apostle Paul introduces. We've seen already how, through the sin of Adam, sin nature was introduced into his lineage, such that we are all born sinners. But the good news is that Jesus offers an antidote to sin's curse, and that is the gracious free gift of salvation. Verse 15 of Romans 5 tells us that salvation through Jesus was offered to the many. And that begs the question, does the many referring to sinners include everybody or just a select few? This is an important question, and it has divided many people into varying opinions. One group who holds a particular idea of limited atonement is known as Calvinists because they ascribe to a number of John Calvin's principles. Today's message is entitled, For Whom Did Jesus Die? And let's get the answer to that question as we rejoin Dr. Brogy. From the context of what we've been reading here in Romans chapter 5 and verse 15, when it says, the many died, do you think it means most or all? What do you think? Yeah, it means all, clearly. It can't mean just some. Because we're all incriminated with Adam's sin, because we all sin in in and with Adam. And so no one can escape death. It's appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. Now, you may be wondering why I am belaboring this, and I'm going to tell you. A lot of you have asked me, am I going to address Calvinism? And I said, of course, we, we can't escape it in studying the book of Romans. But Calvinism, when most people use that term, they're just referring to one aspect of Calvinism, namely the doctrine of divine election. The Bible teaches the doctrine of divine election. It doesn't teach that men are not elected. It teaches man, men and women are elect. That's not the issue of debate. The issue of debate is not if people are elected. The issue of debate is how people are elected. On what basis does God elect people? And Calvin had one way of thinking of it. Many of his followers had one way of thinking of it. And some of us have a different way of thinking of it. Now, Calvinism, in fairness to them, is a very big topic. But they all are interwoven together. In Calvin's thinking, which came out of Roman Catholicism, that came out of St. Augustine, was based on a truth that Augustine said in the 4th century, that God was done with the Jewish people, and that the church, the new Israel, is now God's instrument. And Augustine had to apologize to God, I'm sure, when he met him in heaven for some of the things he said about the Jewish people. Some very anti-Semitic things. And when you go into the Holocaust Museum in D.C. or there in Israel as well, they have posted some of these letters and statements. And it's just embarrassing to me as a Christian. But because he felt like God was done with national Israel... And that's what Catholicism said. 
They said, well, we're the true church. God is working through us. And Calvin just put a different spin on it. He said, well, it's not this organization. It's the body of Christ. But it was the same theology. And that affected the way he will look at Romans 9, 10, and 11. He won't see the subject as national election. He will see it as personal election. Now, his doctrine of salvation can be summarized in an acrostic. I say his doctrine, the doctrine of hyper-Calvinists can be summarized in the acrostic tulip. T stands for total depravity. U for unconditional election. L for limited atonement. I for irresistible grace. P for perseverance of the saints. Now, again, while there are many issues to Calvinism that we're going to explore, this is kind of the watershed issue. And um, while some will embrace two or three or four points, some will embrace all five points. And the point that is always the stickler is the one we're looking at this morning called limited atonement. And again, by limited atonement, or sometimes you'll hear it discussed under the phrase particular atonement, they'll say Jesus died for a particular group of people. That his death the blood he shed was limited only to those who believe. That he didn't die for all. That you cannot look at everyone in the eye and say, God loves you, Christ died for you. Because you don't know that until they believe. And so they would say that his atonement was limited. And again, there's been a huge groundswell in the last five years in some seminaries that have totally changed. And this is now the heartbeat of what they are teaching. And there's a lot of good things going on in those seminaries. But... I think in my view of Scripture, this is an error. These can be brothers. This is not the kind of teaching that means, well, you're not a Christian. There's a lot of wrong things you can believe and still go to heaven. Listen, infant baptism and post-conversion baptism can't both be right. Somebody's right, somebody's wrong. But that's not a salvation issue. You can believe in infant baptism and go to heaven. Many of our brethren do. They're wrong, but, you know... They'll find out when they go to heaven. I say that in humility. God knows that. And you can believe that the atonement was limited. But it is, in my view, a gross error in some of the discussion on election that we're going to, again, explore in great depth. We're going to spend weeks on it, 9 through 11. I think has a diminishing effect on evangelism in the world. Now, you can read books like J.I. Packer, who was a five-point Calvinist, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, which I read in the 1970s for the first time. And he'll say, oh, it's a motivation for evangelism. It's nonsense. It kills evangelism. It kills it. And that's why those churches and those movements that usually bid themselves as Reformed theology are way at the back of the pile when it comes to winning people to Jesus. They can say it's a motivation, but it's not. It kills evangelism. Now, do I believe in total depravity? Depends how you define it. I don't believe in total depravity the way the Reformed theologians believe in it. Nor do I believe in it in the way the Arminians believe in it. Reformed theology, Calvin said, a man is born again, then he believes. That's what he said. He said, you are regenerated by the Spirit, and then after you are made alive, born again, then you believe. I don't think that for a second. Nor do I believe what the Arminians teach, that there's a spark left on man that independent of God, all by himself, he can come to the Lord. That contradicts what we studied in Romans 3. There is none who seeks God. John will write, we love God because he first loved us. And Jesus made a promise 
in John chapter, in John's gospel chapter 16. And when he, speaking of the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. If there's none who seeks God, no, not one, then God has to take the initiative. And God always takes the initiative. He comes in the garden. He says, where are you, Adam? That question was not for his benefit. God knows everything. It was for Adam's benefit. It was a holy, compassionate, loving, gracious, merciful God coming after Adam. And Jesus made a promise that when the Spirit comes, he'll convict the world, and the world means world, of sin, righteousness, and judgment. I base my whole ministry on that. That's why I get on my knees before I preach, and I ask God's Spirit to move and to work and to stir and to open up the eyes of blind hearts that they might see their need for Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Well, how many does he draw? Just the elect? Well, in John chapter 1, Jesus Christ is described as the one who enlightens every man, every man. And in John 12, 32, he says, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. Now, people use that verse, Christians say, and that's why we need to preach Jesus, because if we lift Jesus up, people will come. That's not what the verse is talking about. Now, we should lift Jesus up, but the verse has nothing to do with that. Well, the verse is talking about if Jesus would be lifted up on the cross and raised from the dead, if he would procure for you salvation because God wants men to be saved, he will draw all men to himself. And so we saw too in Romans 1 that man can make choices with that light that God gives. Some men suppress the truth and unrighteousness and professing to be wise, they become fools. And they exchange the glory of incorrupt, the incorruptible God for an image and they worship the creation rather than the creator. And God holds back line. We saw the opposite was true. If a man says, I know there's a God, I see him in creation, I feel him in my conscience, light responded to brings more light and it can ultimately bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to an individual. Some people never hear the gospel for the simple reason they won't respond to the light that God has given them. Now, stay with me. Man is totally depraved. The initiative has to come with God, and God's heart is towards all men. He wants to draw all men to himself, but not all, of course, will respond. Now, beyond total depravity, there's the issue of perseverance of the saints, and we're going to study that in Romans chapter 8. Then there's the issue of unconditional election. What does the Bible mean when it says we're all elected in him before the foundation of the world? And what is irresistible grace? But today I just want to deal with limited atonement. Now here's a verse that those who say Jesus didn't die for everyone but some. Here's a verse they will use. Let me give it to you. We, we, we recite it almost every time we have the Lord's Supper. And when he had taken a cup, and given thanks, this is Mark 14, he gave it to them and they drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And so the hyper-Calvinist says, there you have it. His blood wasn't poured out for all, but for many. It was limited only to those who would believe. What we saw in Romans 5. What does the word many mean? But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more. If by the transgression of the one, uh, the, it much more did the grace of God and the gift of the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. 
So the question is, when Adam sinned and it affected many, as many mean some or all? It means all. Many, poiloi, same word used here in Mark, can mean all. By the way, John Calvin wrote this in his commentary on this verse from Mark 14. He said, and I quote, by the word many, he means not a part of the world only, but the whole human race. John Calvin didn't believe in limited atonement. That's why we call them hyper-Calvinists, because they're more Calvinistic than Calvin himself was. Many means everyone in both verses. You have to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. But the five-point Calvinists would say, well, what about John 10, 11? Jesus said there, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. They would say, you have to admit, he's referring to believers when he says he lays down his life for the sheep. Well, he is talking about believers. And in the context, he's describing how he is different from the thieves and the robbers who don't care about the sheep, who are hirelings, who won't sacrifice for the sheep, who don't really love the sheep. We're in contrasting himself with them. He lays down his life for the sheep. He sacrifices himself for his people because he truly loves his people. This verse is not talking about the extent of the atonement. Among other things, it's talking about the intent of the atonement. And so we spoke of this in Romans 1. We studied that we are not simply loved of God, but we're called his beloved. We are beloved when the verb is used of God. God loves the world, but he has a special affection if you've been born again. I love my next door neighbor's kids, but not like I love them, my own kids. My own children have a special affection, and as many as receive Christ, to them he has given the right, the power, the authority, exousia, to be children of God. Listen to this verse. 1 John 2, 1 and 2. Jot it down. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's talking about Jesus who pleads our case before the Father. Now listen carefully. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. The Bible says that Jesus is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. Now, how would the hyper-Calvinists translate or understand this verse? Oh, the whole world of the elect. He's not talking about the elect in this context. A few verses later, he'll say, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is of the world. He's not talking about the world of the elect. He's talking about an ungodly world, an ungodly world for whom Christ died. If this was the only verse I had in all the scripture, I would believe in an unlimited atonement. Jot down this verse, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. He's describing false teachers, apostates, whom he tells us in that chapter their end is eternal destruction. But of these people, but false prophets, he warns, also arose among the people in the Old Testament, just as there will be false teachers among you in this age. Who will do what? Who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. The master who bought them, Jesus with his precious blood, died even for these false prophets, these false teachers who bring into the church destructive heresies. That does not sound like a limited atonement to me. The most quoted, most memorized verse in the Bible, in John 3, 16, John records, for God so loved the elect. I guess he didn't say that, did he? For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that if the elect would believe in him. 
No, he said it as plain and as clear as he could say it. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I believe Jesus died for everyone. Jot down this for 2 Peter 3 and verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient for you, with you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all, pos. And in every other verse in all the Bible, the word pos, when it says all, means all, and no one debates that. But we want to debate it here. He doesn't mean all, to come, all kinds of men, they would say, to come to repentance, but not all men. And so it's reasoned. It's not God's will, as you unlimited redemptionists say, from 2 Peter 3.9, for anyone to perish and go to hell. But the fact is that men go to hell, and that would make God less than sovereign because God's will is not accomplished. Don't get the idea that because God is sovereign that God's will is always done. I hope you don't think that rape and sodomy and adultery and fornication and drunkenness is part of God's will because it's not. God is not willing that men perish, but God created man with a free will, and because of that, people perish. Now, the hyper-Calvinists would say, well, if you say that Jesus' death is for all and all men don't get saved, then it means that his death is less than effectual and it means that God really is not sovereign. Now listen, your pastor believes in a sovereign God. I don't believe there's a blade of grass that can move apart from God's sovereignty. There's not a bird that falls to the ground apart from God's notice. He knows every star in the sky. He's called each and every one of them by name. And so God in his sovereignty, who allowed his son to die for all men, also in his sovereignty has given man a free will to choose. And the fact that not all look to the merits of Christ's shed blood does not make God any less sovereign and does not mean that his blood is wasted. Because the Bible teaches that not only is the death of Christ, not only is your sin a reason for condemnation, your unbelief in what God did through His Son is a reason for condemnation. Listen to this verse in John 3 and verse 18. He who believes in Him, speaking of the Lord Jesus, God's Son, whom He just spoke of in John 3, 16, he who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And so when Jesus Christ eternally condemns a man, he eternally condemns him not simply because he's a sinner, but he also condemns him for his unbelief. No one at the judgment bar will be able to say, yes, God, all men deserve condemnation. You would be just if you had done nothing and sent everyone to hell. But the fact is, God, you're unjust because while all men deserve condemnation, not all men had an equal chance because there was no way of escape for me because Jesus didn't die for me. No one will be able to say that. Because the same blood that can save me will be the same blood that will condemn other people. Jot down this verse, John 1, verse 29. John the Baptist said this of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the elect. That's not what he said. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the sin of the world. The point I am trying to make 
is that I reject the doctrine that Jesus died just for some. Now, in addition, it would make this analogy here in Romans 5.15 meaningless. Look again at the verse. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and, and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The contrast is very, very clear. Now, I've just cracked the door on this, but don't get lost in this theology. I know this is some heavy stuff, but we're talking about the contrast between Adam and Christ in their motive and in their effect. And so in the contrast in the effect, look now at verse 16. He said, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. Underline in your Bibles that word condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. Underline that word justification. For if by the transgression of the one death, underline that word death, death reigns through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life. Underscore that word life. In life through the one Jesus Christ. Four words contrasting the results between Adam's deed and Christ's decision. I have them again underlined. Condemnation, justification, death, and life. And so Adam's sin brought condemnation while Christ's work brought justification. Adam's sin brought the reign of death while Christ's work brought the reign of life. And to really appreciate the difference between the work of Adam, condemnation, death, and the work of Christ, justification, and life, we have to understand these two words, life and death. Paul's going to expand on these concepts in great detail when we come to Romans 6 to 8. And I don't want you to miss a single sermon. It's going to be so important when we come to that section. But let me just crack the door for a moment. What happened to Adam in the Garden of Eden when he sinned? Well, again, when God made Adam, he said, let us, not let me, in kernel form, it's a, the doctrine of the Trinity is found even in the first chapter of the Bible. It's a Hebrew pronoun that speaks of the triunity of God. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. The Bible says that God is Father, God is Son, God is Spirit. Likewise, Adam is body, soul, and spirit. He's made in a triune way because he's made in the image of God. Listen to what Paul said when he prays for the church at Thessalonica, and by extension for us. May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Man is a triune being made in the image of the triune God. Adam, with his spirit, was able to worship God and to know God. Man's spirit is like a transmitter. It's like a receiver. It's what gives him the capacity to worship and to know the Lord. And so Jesus says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. When we come to Romans 8, he will say that when we're saved, the spirit himself will bear witness with our spirit that we've become children of God. He's already said in this fifth chapter that the Holy Spirit has been poured out into our hearts through Christ who loved us. So there's the spirit of man, but there's also the soul of man. The word for soul is the Greek word suke. We got our word psychology directly from it. And in a broad sense, and this is where it's a little challenging, sometimes the word soul, remember words get their meaning in context, sometimes it's used to describe the entire immaterial portion of man. And so Jesus says, for instance, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? 
But in a technical sense, man is described as a tripartite being. Uh, The Word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit. If the spirit and the soul were the same, you couldn't divide them. But God says they're divisible. And so in a technical sense, God describes us as having a, a soul, a spirit, and a body. And so the soul of man, when it's used technically, is used to describe the mind, will, and emotions of man. But man also has a body. Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 5 as your earthly tent. And it's like a tent in a lot of ways. And that with time, a tent weathers and it begins to get holes and it begins to break down. And as you get older, you don't get better, you get weaker. That's just the reality of it all. And so this is our spacesuit. This is how people relate to the immaterial person, the real me that is on the inside. Now, if you can understand what happened to Adam when he sinned, you will appreciate your salvation so much more. God warned in Genesis 2, from any tree you may eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat from it you will die. Literally, the Hebrew text reads this way. It's rather wooden, but it's literally what it says. For in the day that you eat from it, dying you shall die. Dying you shall die. It describes a progression in the original. Well, what happened to Adam on that day that he ate? Well, he died initially. He died in his spirit. And so Ephesians 2 describes man as being dead in in our trespasses and sins. Paul describes ungodly women as the walking dead. They are physically alive, but spiritually dead. And so the day that Adam sinned, the lights went out. The scripture says in Proverbs, the spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all the innermost parts of his being. Spiritual darkness came upon Adam, and so he's afraid he's hiding from God Almighty because dying you shall die. And so he immediately died in his spirit. But then progressively, he began to age. And so we're born aging. We get older and older and older and older and older from the moment of conception. But man also dies in his soul. Man's soul, and we're going to study this when we come to the sixth chapter, is not getting better. It's degenerating. Your mind, your will, and emotions doesn't progressively get cleaner. They get worse. A dirty old man gets dirtier. And this is why it's important to be born again. A little child who has a certain innocence to him, who knows so little of this world, in many ways we'd say, well, his thought life is clean. But as he walks through this dirty old world, his thought life gets dirtier, and some people's thought life gets dirtier than other people because of choices that they make. And so we're going to see in Romans 6 through 8, he's going to talk about our old man and our uh, you know, our old person and, and, and how it gets bad. This week, I bought my wife some beautiful cut flowers. And they were gorgeous when I gave them to her. But they're beginning to droop this morning. They're not quite like they were. Why? Because they've been cut off from the source of life. For in the day you eat from it, dying you shall die. He died immediately in his spirit. Progressively, he was decaying. He was rotting, man, in his mind, will, and emotions. And ultimately... He will die in his body. God said to him in Genesis 3.19, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so that's the result of what Adam did, condemnation and death. 
For a copy of today's study from Romans 5, verses 15 to 17, entitled, For Whom Did Jesus Die?, call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and request program ROM25. You can also listen online at our website, searchthescriptures.org, or use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, available through the iTunes Store and the Google Play Store. Tomorrow we conclude our look at For Whom Did Jesus Die? Join us then as we search the scriptures.